A number of years ago, there was a book that was written by a Wall Street fat cat, a Wall Street CEO, in which he discussed his business experiences. Now, this man had had a lot of business experiences. He had done all sorts of different things. He had been mighty, a titan of industry. And in this book, he lays out some of his strategies for the things he did and how he accomplished all that he accomplished. Now, when he started to get introspective in this book, he started to talk a little bit about his mentality and what he had to do to succeed. Now, one of the things that he said he had to do, he had no other choice, was he said in order to climb the corporate ladder, he had to be ruthless. He had to prioritize his interests because he thought that no one else would. He said, I had to prioritize my interests, and he said the businesses and individuals need to do the same. You need to do everything that you can in order to differentiate yourself in a crowded marketplace and to rise above the rest, even if that means stepping on the toes of others. This man had what you might call a Gordon Gecko mindset, for those of you familiar with Wall Street. A Gordon Gecko mindset, a mindset that said greed is good and success is everything. There's a quote that's attributed to this man where he said the most valuable part of a human being's body is not his mind and it's not his heart, it's the hip that holds his wallet. This is the mindset of this man. Now, he might have been a dominant businessman, but here's the thing. He would have made just a terrible pastor, a terrible church elder, a terrible anything in the context of a church. Now, why is that? Well, how much time you got? There's a lot of reasons why that he wouldn't have worked in this context, but the main reason that if he took that mentality and applied it to a church, the main reason that that would not have worked at all is because this man had trained himself to see people as a resource that is to be mined for the success of the business or the institution, that people are a means to an end. This is how he saw people, but in the church we do the exact opposite. True success in a church is when the people are those who grow. It's when the people who are the church succeed rather than the institution itself per se. Now in today's text in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul, he's going to demonstrate his own management philosophy. We're going to learn a little bit about how Paul saw the church as a church leader. And in his words, we're going to see that Paul is going to elevate love and charity and patience and kindness and giving of oneself as a primary means by which the church grows. Beyond this, he's going to tell the Philippians that his greatest desire for them is not that they would achieve some arbitrary metric of success, the number of people in a worship service, the amount of money given or what have you. No, that's not the barometer of success. Rather, we're going to see in Philippians 2, his desire, the greatest metric that they could be measured by is the degree to which they have come to resemble their Savior, Jesus Christ. The degree to which you and me become Christ-like as a function of the ministry of this church and God's Word and His Spirit, that is the metric by which we're measured, the degree to which we resemble His own Son. And in today's text, Paul's going to speak specifically to the humility of the Son, and he's going to say this, this is the path to success. Not elevating yourself and your importance and your whims and wills and wants to the utmost, but rather taking the needs of others, prioritizing those. Seeing less of yourself and more of them. That, that is the means, the measure by which we are to succeed in the eyes of Christ. All right, let's look at verses 1 through 4 of today's text. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. We'll study that and then we'll just work our way through the bounds. Verse 1. 
Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, being of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. All right. Over the past couple weeks, this again is week three in our study in Philippians. Over the past couple weeks, we talked a little bit about the historical context in which Philippians was written. As you may remember, the letter of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison in Rome. So Paul was writing to a church in Philippi in the region of Macedonia, far away, removed from where he was. He was writing from under house arrest, under circumstances that were terrible, and yet even though his situation was awful, the letter to the Philippians was encouraging and upbeat and joyful. And the reason it was so encouraging and upbeat and joyful is because the Philippians, knowing that Paul was in jail, had sent provision to him. They didn't have a mentality that said, out of sight, out of mind. They didn't keep Paul and his needs at arm's length. Rather, they thought about him, they prayed about him, and they sent a man named Epaphroditus to bring him supplies and provision. So this is the context in which Philippians is written. Paul is writing, at least in part, to thank them. Back in chapter 1 of Philippians, that was one of the first things out of Paul's mouth, his pen, so to speak, was he said this. He says, oh, Philippians... I thank my God every time I remember you. Every time I think of you, O Philippians, those in Philippi, I thank God for you. Now, there's a lot of reasons why he was thankful for them, but among them was the fact that they had looked out for him while he was in need. It is a great hallmark of a local church. It's a great hallmark of a local congregation when it thinks outside the four walls of its local body. When one thinks of missionaries out in the field that you might not know, might not have seen, might not even have met, and yet you remember them. It's a hallmark of the local church, of the love of the local church, when we think of those on the front lines of ministry, even if they're not here locally. Well, those in Philippi were thinking about Paul making provision for Paul, and so he thanks him at the start of his letter. By the time we get to chapter 2 of today's reading, Paul has already thanked them, he's already encouraged them in matters of faith, and he's trying now to fan the flames. He already sees and recognizes the embers of a burning love for Jesus and for others in Philippi, and that encourages him, that warms the heart of Paul. And yet he wants to fan the flames of that into something even greater, into a greater fire, because he knows, he knows that their ultimate success is going to be predicated on the degree to which they continue to love one another and love everyone else. You know, if in the time ahead of us, if you were ever to move or to be relocated to a new city, a new location, the first thing that you should do when considering or looking at a church in that context is to look at what that church believes, to look at the church's doctrines and statement of faith and confession and theology. And it's important to understand what a church believes because that's going to affect and form everything that the church does. So that's important. You look to find what does the church believe? What does it say? Is this the inspired and errant word of God or is it not? And does the man behind the pulpit preach from what it says? This is a good starting point. With that said, not only, not only should a church there or here or anywhere else be doctrinally sound, not only is that important, but the church should also be loving. It should be loving. Now that seems like it should be intuitive, right? Yeah, church should be loving. 
I'll bet you that you may have been in church or crossed paths with a church that maybe wasn't quite so much. Paul knew some churches that weren't quite so loving. The church in Philippi was. And again, he wanted to fan that into a flame. He wanted them to increase with the strength they already had and to take their beliefs and their orthodoxy and their theology and to demonstrate everything they knew up here by what they did with their hands, what they said with their lips, by the way they lived their lives and showed love for those around them. Now, if you ever, again, in time ahead of us, hopefully far, far ahead of us, if you ever had to look for another church somewhere down the road, I trust that you would look for a church that's theologically sound and which love is demonstrated amongst the membership. For that said, verse 4, Paul says that there's not just an expectation placed upon the church, but there's also an expectation placed upon you, placed upon you as a member, as part of the church. In verse 4 we say this, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. If a church is going to be loving, if it's going to be known as loving, so loving, in fact, that someone somewhere says, I thank God every time I think of you, the way Paul said in Philippi. If that's going to be true of that church, this church, any church, it's going to be because people like you and I say, I'm going to be intentional in finding ways to demonstrate love and grace to other people, even at cost to myself. Even if it means giving of something myself to look out for their welfare. Verse 4 says that's not incumbent just upon the denomination or the institution or the pastor or elders or deacons. It's incumbent on all of us. It says let each of you, let each of you, that's us, let each of you look out not only for your own interests but also the interests of others. Healthy, loving churches don't happen just on accident. They happen because people like you and I say... By gum, I'm going to demonstrate some love and grace to someone other than myself today. I'm going to stop being so self-preoccupied by the one in the mirror, and I'm going to give some thought and attention to others, perhaps even those I don't know and perhaps even those I don't like, because that can happen too. This is what love looks like. And again, it doesn't happen by accident, and it's not just reliant on someone else to do it. This is a charge not given to five super spiritual people at the front end of the church, but to every member of the church. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, how is that done? That sounds like a good statement. Love people. Okay, let's assume we can all nod our heads. Loving people is good. How? How do you do that? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. There's a lot of ways we can do that, and there's a lot of ways we do do that in the context of our own church. It's done by those who volunteer in the nursery, VBS, those who visit shut-ins, those who demonstrate care and grace to those who can't be here. This is an example of showing love, sowing seeds of love. Those who serve in capacities, whether it's committees or church offices, those who do a simple thing as inviting someone to lunch after church. These are always, cumulatively, by which we become more Christ-like, and by which we are known as the church of Philippi was. One that people thank God for. Not only because we're theologically proficient and intellectual and reformed and all that, but because we take what we believe and we sow real loving seeds in the hearts of others and make a difference. That's what Paul wanted in Philippi, and it doesn't happen by accident. These things require people like you and I to say to ourselves, how can I do this today? What's a conversation I could have when church lets out? What's a card I could write to a missionary? Have you ever written to a missionary? Look at the back of your bulletin. There's all those names. Take one stamp and about five minutes to do it. These are small ways, but critical ways. 
incumbent upon all of us by which we demonstrate love and grace. And all these might require some sacrifice of our time and talent and treasures. That's true. Loving others and prioritizing them may require us to sacrifice something of ourselves. And yet, the eternal return on investment, the eternal ROI is what they call it in the financial world, the eternal return on investment on that, on the sort of sacrifice we give for others, that return on investment makes Gordon Gecko seem like a pauper. Is there something you can do this week to demonstrate this, to look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others? All right, let's look at verses 5 through 7. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. You know, when someone acts as if the world owes them everything, when someone acts like just by virtue of them entering the room, they're doing everybody a favor, when somebody acts in that sort of way, we might say, well, that person, boy, they're acting entitled. We might say they have an air of entitlement around them. They think the world owes them everything and they're doing everybody a favor just through their presence. Well, let me tell you something. If there was ever, if there was ever anyone who had the right and the position and the authority to act entitled, it was Jesus Christ. If there was ever anyone who had the right to be entitled, if there was ever anyone who, when he came down, could have gone to the top of a tall mountain, had a long red carpet that went to the bottom, that you and I had to bow and scrape and bang up our knees just to climb into his presence, if there was anyone who had the right and the position and the authority to demand that and to act entitled because he was entitled, it was Jesus. This is God in the flesh. This is God incarnate. And if anyone was ever in a position to sit back and let others serve him, if anyone was ever in a position to insist upon his rights, divine prerogatives and privileges, if anyone was ever in a position to demand the fealty of others, it was him. But... But that's not what he did. He had every right to act entitled because he was entitled. But that's not what he did. And that's what Paul's calling out here. He says, man alive, this is the king of kings, lord of lords. This one is so far greater than you and I. You could stack us all up cumulatively to the heavens. We'd never even approach him. This is the king of kings, the lord of lords. And yet in verse 7 it says, this same one made of himself no reputation." In fact, says he took on the form of a bondservant. Now, what was a bondservant? Well, the word pretty much conveys the meaning. Bondservant was one who served others. Bondservant puts the needs of those he serves above his own. Now, why is Paul describing Jesus in this way? What's his point here? Well, he's reminding us of Christ's humility in this text because of what he said back in verse 5 when he said, Let this mind be in you which was in him. In other words, the reason he's talking about Christ's humility and how he came down from a throne to be born in a manger and how he condescended and how humble he was, the reason he's explaining what Jesus did was in order to remind us that we're supposed to have the same approach. If Jesus, who was God in the flesh, was humble to the point of washing feet, Dear heavens, washing feet is one of the most humble things you could possibly do. If Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, was so humble to the point of washing feet, and he didn't stop there, but dying on a cross, and not just dying on a cross, but dying in an ignominious way where he was spat upon and had a crown of thorns on his head, 
If he did that, how in the world can we withhold grace and humility to others, those of which we are indistinguishable from? If God condescended in this way, how can we not respond in like manner? Well, Paul said, let this mind be in you, which is in him. Jesus is an example we are supposed to follow. If God in the flesh was inclined to serve others, then so should we. Jesus Christ, out of his love for you and me, he stepped into what theologians call the law place, that the wrath of God would come down upon him. He suffered, he bled, he died in order to save us, his wayward servants. Now that's what sacrifice, that's what service looks like. And Paul, in this context of these previous verses, is saying you and I should have that sort of heart. If Jesus Christ came to earth and underwent all that he underwent, if he underwent that in order to save you and I, then how can we, how dare we act high and mighty to others in our lives or in our midst or in our church? All right, let's see as Apostle Paul is going to expand on this. He's going to describe the humility of Christ in verse 8. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, in God's kingdom, we know and believe that there's a lot of angels. There's a lot of angels in God's kingdom. They've been around God for a long time. They've been around Christ for a long time. They know a lot about Jesus. I suspect they know more about Jesus than you and I know about Jesus. Well, the angels who knew about Jesus, who cover their eyes when they're in his presence... The angels who know a great deal about Jesus, can you imagine what must have been going on through their minds when they saw Jesus nailed to a cross? See, the angels knew a lot about us. They know just how sinful and weak and fallen and stupid and rebellious we can be. They know a lot about Jesus, too, how awesome and holy and majestic and wonderful and marvelous that he is. And so although you and I might take it for granted, this picture of Jesus on the cross, to the angels, knowing the depth of humanity, knowing who we were, who we are, and knowing who Jesus is, they must have stood back, mouth agape at this sight, at this holy one, this king of kings, this lord of lords, this perfect one, would undergo not just death, but death in the most ignominious way possible. Notice in verse 8, that the author points out to us, it's not just that Jesus died that's a big deal. Now that is a big deal, but it's not just that he died. Verse 8 points our attention to how he died and how humbling this is. Verse 8, it said, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. See, if he died as a hero on a battlefield in a way that society says, well, that's a noble way to go. If you have to go, dying out on the battlefield for your common man, that's noble. That's not the form of death that Jesus underwent. Jesus, when he was on Calvary, he died as a criminal, hung between other criminals. He had a crown of thorns on his head. He had been spat upon. He had been bruised and crushed. His back was nothing but scar tissue. The people at his feet, they mocked him and they divided lots to divide his clothing. It's not just that Jesus died, it's also how he died. And if you were an angel from heaven and you saw that, you'd say, oh my goodness. 
the raw shock that you must have had as an angel to see the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, this bright, holy, radiant one in that estate. This, this is both the humility and condescension of Jesus Christ. This is also the love of Jesus Christ because he underwent that so that you wouldn't have to. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. That's pretty comprehensive. Every knee shall bow. And verse 11, as well as every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, when Jesus died on that day where the angels must have been amazed to see him in this estate, to see the humility and the condescension, there were enemies of Jesus that had a different reaction. The enemies of Jesus saw him die too, and when he died, this was a happy day for the Pharisees. This is a happy day for many in Rome. This is a happy day for those whose positions Jesus had made more difficult, made more challenging. For those who were in opposition, for those who were rebellious against Christ and his kingdom, this was a happy day to see him, see him die. The Romans and Pharisees may have thought that Jesus would be no more. In a sense, that's understandable. If someone dies, generally speaking, that's the end. It's pretty hard to continue to advance your agenda if you're not around to advance it. But, but... The good news of the gospel is that Jesus, unlike everyone else, Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus defied the expectation of his enemies by rising three days later. And if people had been paying attention, not long before he died, Jesus had said this. He says, you know what? I lie my life down, but I can also take it back up again. Christ's death, however humbling it was, was not the end of the story. And three days later... The cross would pave the way to the resurrection. And his humiliation was but for a moment. It would pave the way for his exaltation at the hands of his Father. That exaltation is what verses 9 through 11 are talking about. The exaltation, Christ says, it is finished. And as a result of him finishing the work that was tasked to him, God has exalted him above every name on earth. Jesus Christ had gone on a rescue mission to save you and I, and this mission was both over and successful. It had been a hard mission. It had been a costly mission. It meant taking on the form of the people he came to save and living and breathing and dying amongst them. This was hard. This was costly. It involved a manger, a crown of thorns, and a cross. But all those things, all those things were ultimately replaced by a throne where he was exalted too. Verses 9 through 11 talk about this. Other verses speak of the exaltation. Mark 16, the author of this gospel says this. It says, After the Lord had spoke to them, he was received up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. When Christ's earthly ministry was over, he took his seat at the right hand of the Father, where he even now reigns and rules from on high. At one point, he lived out his days here on earth. Well, guess what? From where he sits now, the earth... It's just his footstool. He is exalted. He's defeated death. He defeated it. He sits on high. With that said, we do well when we consider the humiliation and understand the nature and the depth and significance of his sacrifice and understand what he went through. 
But we also rejoice to know that he didn't stay dead, that he is exalted. And the result of that exaltation, the result of the fact that he's now at the right hand of the Father, the result of the fact that his feet are now up on the footstool of this earth is that in due time, every knee shall bow. In due time, every tongue confess that he is Lord. Every must man, woman, and child on this globe who lives now, who has ever lived, will be held accountable to this statement. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It does not matter if one fancies oneself a secularist, a humanist, an atheist, what have you. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate once sat in judgment of Jesus. Well, guess what? It's now Pilate. It's now Pilate who faces judgment. And who will confess in judgment what he should have professed in life, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in due time, every man, woman, and child will join him. All right, with our remaining moments, I want to just briefly return to the primary theme of today's passage. As we saw in chapter 2, at least this far in chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul is trying to encourage them to be of one mind and one love for one another. He's reminding them to stay strong and stay united, but also to stay humble. As we saw in today's passage, he says to the church in Philippi and in Gulfport, he says to look to others, to esteem others as better than oneself. And he used Jesus Christ as the primary example of this. Now, in our own church, we are blessed to have a great deal of unity in our midst. We're blessed to have so many with servants' hearts. We have so many folks with good servants' hearts who look out for others. But at the same time, we're still fallen. At the same time, we're still inclined towards sin. And at the same time, we're still inclined to prioritizing the man in the mirror more than anyone else in the world around him. We can all be tempted by pride and ego to elevate our needs and wants and will and whims above something that might benefit our fellow man. With that said, let me close with this thought. If you learn, or as you learn, to sacrifice of yourself, to sacrifice pride and and ego and priorities on behalf of other people, on behalf of your peers, you'll learn this, that they will respect you more because of it. You see, it's not simply the man who's right all the time and lets everyone know it that earns the respect of his peers. In fact, that's usually not the way it works. The man who earns respect is the man who often defers, defers to others, looks to what they want, hears them out, prioritizes what's important to them, not in a way that contradicts Scripture, but in a way that honors the fellow man. It's true in the world around us. It's true in the workplace, but it's especially true in church. The degree to which we sacrifice of ourselves and lift up others, that's the sort of love that we're known for even outside the four walls of our body. And when we do that, people notice. When, if you do that, people see, they notice when you don't always have to have things your way. They notice when you demonstrate deference and humility, especially in those times that you don't have to. Especially in those times you don't have to. And when you do this, you will leave them You leave a far more positive impression with them through your deference and your humility and your grace than any other relational tactic that you might employ. People don't always remember what you say, but they'll always remember the way you made them feel. This is true anywhere. It's true, especially in church. Whatever the case, Jesus' disciples, Jesus' disciples, they remembered what he said, but they also remembered the way that he treated them. 
Jesus' disciples, they loved Jesus, and it wasn't just because he was powerful. It wasn't just because he was mighty and, and radiant. He was those things, but that wasn't the only reason that they loved him. They loved and followed him because he was gracious, because he was humble, because his yoke was easy, because he was tenderhearted. He listened to them. He cried with them. He prayed with them. This made it easy for them to follow him. Let's pray for the grace that we might humbly do likewise. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.